1: I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando, and welcome to Commando On Demand. It's my podcast that gives you in-depth insight on the ever-changing technology world. Before we get started, a quick message from one of our partners in this podcast that helped make them possible.
2: Right now, we're just learning the first part of the mystery. It's kind of like we've just opened the book and tried to figure it out using DNA technology.
1: There's a serial killer on the loose that thousands of detectives are just trying to stop. This killer has destroyed millions of lives, literally. The detectives are coming at it from all sides, setting up ambushes, trying to lure it out of hiding, figure out its tactics to catch it and finally kill it. But the killer is smart, adaptable, unpredictable, undetectable, but its methods are getting easier and easier to figure out. The detectives are zeroing in, circling around on all sides. Let me tell you, the killer can't strike the way it used to because of new technology. Sometimes the detectives see it coming and they can save lives. But with every life saved, more mysteries crop up. The killer is able to morph, to mutate, and to just change course. Detectives try and starve it. They poison it, they burn it, they cut it off and they remove its energy supply, but it's still relentless. Can you think what the killer is? That killer is cancer. And it's slowly but surely losing the fight. Such great news. The detectives, well, I'm talking about the doctors, the researchers, the assistants, the scientists, and you won't believe what they're now discovering in human DNA. It's the most exciting time ever for cancer detection and prevention. And as many of you know, Cancer hit my home this past year. That's the day that I was told by some Mayo Clinic doctors that I should just take my mother home. She should complete her bucket list because she has pancreatic cancer and it's pretty much incurable. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case. I took mom to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, where I met with some amazing, phenomenal doctors and scientists and researchers. And with them being the detectives, my mother, she went through something called the Whipple surgery about a month ago. And as a doctor friend of mine recently told me, the Whipple is probably the most invasive surgery that we still do today. It's akin to what a surgeon did in the late 1800s. They cut you open, they take out pieces of you, and then they have to figure out how to put it all back together. And in my mother's case, she was in the operating room. On the table for 14 hours. And when the surgeon came out, Dr. Michael Kim, I actually made a joke with him because the guy looked like he just played around a round of golf. And he explained to me that they had cut my mother's pancreas not once, but twice. They cut out a big chunk of it, about half of it. They sent it off to biopsy, and it came back still with cancer. And then he explained to me they only get one more shot to cut the pancreas, but they did it in the right spot. And when they biopsied that during the surgery, it came back cancer-free. My mother is now on the mend. And because of my experience with cancer, I have become my family's go-to person for cancer and cancer research. I have a dear friend, I'm not gonna tell you her name. She's only 30 years old. Now think about when you were 30 years old. How much did you really know about life? How much did you really experience about life? Well. She's young, she's beautiful, happily married to a great guy. They have a -a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. They have a daughter who just turned one. They bought their first house, and she wasn't feeling well after the second child. She was complaining about stomach aches, and a doctor said to her, well, you know, you just had a baby, give yourself a break. Then she went to another doctor and said, oh my gosh, my shoulders are killing me. And that doctor said, Well, that's because you're carrying a a two-and-a-half-year-old on one arm and a one-year-old on the other. So, of course, your back is going to hurt. She went to another doctor and said, I don't know why, but it doesn't seem like my uterus is going down. The doctor there actually wrote in her chart, unbelievable, wrote in her chart that she was suffering from postpartum depression and she should seek medical care for her mind. She called me up and She was diagnosed with a really bad form of cancer. I sent her to MD Anderson and she called me in tears. She has bile duct cancer. Her stomach is so big because she has a tumor the size of a baseball in her liver. She has cancer all throughout her body. She doesn't know how much longer she's going to live. But the doctors explained to her that maybe there's something they could do. Maybe there's something that could help her. They're not sure. Normally, they don't see bile duct cancer unless somebody is in their 60s or 70s. So they went to work, and they're working with her. They're working on her case. They're being that detective. They're finding out what type of mutation she has so that they can tailor some type of cure for her or at least prolong her life so she can see these two babies at least go to kindergarten. I'm America's digital pro, Kim Commando. And in this podcast, you're going to meet some of the world's top cancer DNA detectives. But that's not all. I'm also going to ask you to be your own DNA detective, based on some groundbreaking research that's happening right now. What's wrong with Africa? What
2: is wrong with Africa?
0: Between 90 and 100% of women with breast cancer in Africa presented with stage 3 or stage 4 disease, advanced disease or metastatic disease, where cure is not an option, and you've got to treat the symptoms and provide palliation.
1: 95% of them are going to die in the villages, usually without any pain control.
0: To them, hunger may kill them this month before the cancer kills them next year. Cancer in Tanzania is still equated to death sentence. Sometimes people are not wrong to say so because... If all cancer patients die, how can you convince anybody that it's not a death sentence?
1: You
0: take nurses, you take technicians, you take doctors out of their country to train them in a high-resource country. Our experiences, that a large majority do not go back to their own country. Africa. There are the countries that don't have a single radiotherapy machine. There are countries where they've got one radiotherapy machine and you go and visit it and it's broken down. What's wrong with so not having radiotherapy means that patients are suffering very much because of pain and other symptoms due to the cancers.
1: What is wrong with Nobody can afford those treatments because most of our patients pay their treatments cash. We do not have good insurance schemes covering our patients. Out there, there are people who are ready to help us. But we need to help ourselves first, yeah? And let them see that we are serious. This world is not an island. We all need each other. So we have to support each other to make sure that we get there. And I'm sure if we can support each other and we get there, we'll celebrate together. Our mystery takes us first to the Great Rift Valley in western Kenya. If you look up over there towards the hill, you'll be able to make out two graves. One of them is just a few years old, the other is fresh. They hold the precious memories of a husband and a wife who died just four years apart. Their daughter Emily is busy cooking lunch when the detectives arrive. Her kitchen is a small mud hut with smoke seeping out the door from her open fire. Chickens scratch in the dirt nearby. It seems peaceful enough, except there's a killer on the loose. DNA detectives from far away have come to track it down. Sixty years ago, the killer showed up and began slaughtering people in droves. That killer is squamous cell esophageal carcinoma, which starts in the cells of the esophagus, What's weird is that before the 1940s, hardly anyone died from it. It was unheard of. Now it's one of the three most common cancers in Africa, but the mystery doesn't stop there, not by a long shot. You see, other cancers are taking root in Iran, which has one of the highest cancer rates on earth. From north central China to southern Brazil to Slovakia and Denmark to the Czech Republic, People are developing new strains of cancer, and it's puzzling. Why are the Czech people getting more kidney and pancreatic cancer than, say, the people in Austria and Poland? Why are certain people of an age group in Africa getting other certain cancers, while some people don't? Does the answer lie in genes that they inherit from their ancestors, or does it have something to do with their lifestyle? Is there an unknown lurking in the environment, or Maybe, just maybe, it's a combination of all three. Cancer variations are widely different, so naturally, the DNA detectives have very different approaches. Together, they race towards finding a cause and a cure. They, they race against each other, but they also race for each other. You see, everybody wants to make the next big discovery, but in the end, it doesn't matter who gets there first. The DNA detectives won't rest until the killer is stopped. And one of those detectives is a gentleman by the name of Mike Stratton. He's the director of the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Wellcome Trust is one of the largest centers in the world for DNA sequencing and analysis. And he's teamed up with Paul Brennan from the International Agency for Research on Cancer in Lyon, France, one of the World Health Organization's cancer research arms. They, along with other teams from around the world, make up a group of detectives called the mutographs of cancer. Together, they hunt for clues deep, deep, deep inside the DNA of cancer cells, and we're gonna hear from them. But first, let's take a moment to thank our partners that help make these Commando On Demand podcasts possible. Let me explain something. The Mutagraphs team has recruited 5,000 people across the world with five different types of cancer. So, in Africa, for example, they're extracting and analyzing DNA from thousands of tumors and building this enormous database of mutational signatures, kind of think of it as a FBI fingerprint database, so they can match causes to cancers from around the world. Okay, so far, they've been able to nail down and link three very distinct causes of cancer. Are you ready for them? Sunlight, tobacco, and exposure to certain chemicals. Now, sometimes the cause is an inside job, but there's another cause. They call it the unknown culprit, and it's responsible for 50% of all cancers. And that culprit is a very complicated biological mystery. Detectives can see the fingerprints clearly enough, but the culprits that left them, well, they're still at large. In order to catch a killer, you have to understand just how far these DNA detectives have already come. One of the greatest DNA detectives in the world is a biochemist by the name of Fred Sanger. Well, Fred got the ball rolling by discovering a reliable method for reading a DNA sequence, which, as you know, you can see the picture of DNA. It's unraveled to form kind of like a strand. Now, as you can imagine, looking at all six billion letters is pretty darn time-consuming. So researchers got smart. They began focusing their intention on just one gene. It's a really important one. It's called P53. Just remember that, P53. It's the primary one that malfunctions whenever cancer shows up. Technology has moved us on to what's called the next generation sequencing, DNA reading machines that allowed scientists to read thousands or maybe even millions of these data sequences at one time. And by interpreting these readings, Mike Stratton was able to understand the genetic changes that took place inside individual tumors. And this is really important. So the Sanger Institute put these DNA sequencing machines to work, and they were able to read, it's just amazing stuff, every single letter of DNA in a tumor. Wow. And just like detectives can read a human fingerprint, imagine this with all the ridges, mutational fingerprints are made of changing patterns in DNA. So these DNA detectives, they went back to work, they wanted to classify those patterns. So they ended up with 96 different subtypes of mutation. And just to let you know, there are thousands upon thousands of mutations in a typical tumor. So even though they're arranged into these subgroups, if the cancer has multiple or unknown origins, well, the detective work becomes extremely difficult as you might think. It's like trying to find a killer's fingerprints when the murder took place during a party. There are a bunch of fingerprints, but only one set belongs to the killer. And see, the whole idea to find out exactly more about these mutations is because then the doctors can come up with that individualized cancer solution. Okay, so fortunately, another world-class DNA detective, Ludmil Alexandrov, now an assistant professor at the University of California. Well, he came up with a way to distinguish individual mutational signatures in a tumor using a method called blind source separation. It's kind of like the lead vocal remove in an audio editing program. Well, thanks to him, these DNA detectives can now see individual mutations and basically find out what the killer looks like and where he came from. It's devastating when you get a diagnosis or somebody in your family does with cancer. And this is truly a case where knowledge is power. You have to know about DNA. You have to know what's going on. And coming up, we're gonna hear from one DNA detective, a super smart, intelligent researcher, scientist, and doctor who stumbled onto a huge mystery in Zambia. And what's great about Dr. Colin Tanaguchi is that, well, Dr. Taniguchi has a way of explaining things in plain English. He just boils it all down. That's what I love about Cullen. And he's going to tell us about how that mystery could lead to the next big biological discovery of our century. Before we get to that, let's take a moment to hear from one of our partners who helped make these Commando on Demand podcasts possible. Hey, welcome back. Now for the next part of the mystery. The DNA detectives have been assembled. The tools are in one place. And researchers are collecting and analyzing fingerprints from cancers all over the world. There are many different approaches, many different teams, and many, many cancer mysteries. For instance, in esophageal cancers, signs of the disease actually show up when certain proteins respond to viral infections. And get this sipping scalding hot tea seems to be a cancer culprit not only in africa but also in iran and certain parts of south america and when i say scalding hot i mean scalding hot it's actually part of their culture another clue that's cropping up is probably related to dental hygiene people in china with fewer teeth have a greater risk of esophageal cancer whatever the cause most of the sufferers will die within a year so teams all over the world are collecting and transporting the cancerous tissue just as fast as they can and they're making incredible sacrifices in order to do it now one dna detective from md anderson cancer center in houston texas is leading the way in solving the mystery of gastrointestinal cancers his name is dr colin Taniguchi. He's a board-certified radiation oncologist who specializes in all gastrointestinal cancers. And I will tell you that Dr. Taniguchi is one of these guys when you look at him, well, you see how smart he is. There's just a ton of synapsing and brain cell activity going on in that guy's head. And as you might expect, he graduated from Harvard University in 2005 with a PhD Well, then like the rest of us, he continued his studies on Harvard, right? Okay, maybe we didn't, but he did. And he actually got his medical degree from Harvard University in 2008. He's studying cell culture and complex animal models that are all designed to be relevant to human disease. And he works to translate these findings and take them to clinical trials. And while he was doing his studies, He stumbled onto a really tragic and perplexing mystery in Africa. Dr. Taniguchi, I'm so glad you could join us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so I have to ask you a question. You know, we've been talking about DNA detectives here in this podcast. Do you consider yourself a DNA detective?
2: Well, that's true. I I am a DNA detective, and I super specialize in pancreatic cancer.
1: Give us just a little background on your research.
2: Part of my research is to understand what makes these cancers tick and whether they're responding to our treatments.
1: So why is DNA so important? Or what makes it so special? Why do we have to study it so intensely?
2: The DNA is one of our clues to what's going on inside of a tumor. And the reason it's something that we can study is that DNA is very stable, almost Every part of a cell will fall apart after you take it out of the body, but your DNA will stay stable like a blueprint of what was going on in the cell.
1: So as you've been researching cancer all these years, what do you know about the strange increase in esophageal cancer in Africa?
2: There's a lot of very interesting and unfortunate events like this going on throughout Africa. In fact, last week I was just in Zambia and they're having a huge increase in colorectal cancer in 20-year-olds, which is basically unheard of.
1: So you're getting in there, of course, and you're documenting all this and you're saying what we should be doing moving forward. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Trying to get pieces of their DNA to understand if there's some new mutation
1: that could explain it all. Okay, this is Africa. It's not the United States. Have you run into any type of snags?
2: In many places in Africa, there are very basic cancer treatments. They don't have access to all the technology and medicines that we do. And so we work with them to try to figure out more efficient ways to treat their patients.
1: And I know you can't just waltz into a country and start collecting tumor samples from people. You probably have to have a step-by-step protocol that you need to follow. The
0: first step in any process
2: is you kind of have to go through several layers of permission. Anytime you're going to study anything in the human condition, you have to make sure that you're following all the rules. You have to have a protocol that's approved by a hospital in the states, as well as a hospital in that country, and you have to make sure that everyone is consented and understands why you're doing it. And then once you have those basic things in place, then you can collect the tumors, then you can study them in the laboratory and try to put together the pieces of the mystery.
1: And I guess this is the million-dollar question. How close would you say you are?
2: Right now, we're just learning the first part of the mystery. It's kind of like we've just opened the book and tried to figure it out using DNA technology.
1: We've talked a little bit about that P53 gene. How important is it in your type of research and why?
2: P53 is one of the most commonly mutated genes of any cancer, and it's very commonly mutated in cancers of the GI tract. And one thing I do want to point out is that cancer genes are actually normal genes that function to protect our body in many cases or help it work well. But when they're mutated, they cause cancer. P53 is the classic example of this. It's also known as the guardian of the genome. It is a gene that gets turned on when there's any kind of damage to our DNA. So when P53 is mutated, when it doesn't work well, our DNA... Not repaired as well, and more mutations can happen which lead to cancer.
1: I guess, in the same way that human fingerprints leave their mark, mutational fingerprints leave their mark in terms of DNA. Do you think that's a good analogy?
2: I think that's a perfect way to to state that. Part of the reason that we're able to find these mutations are that they leave their, their fingerprints in the genome not only. Is there a change in the way that their own gene looks, but that one gene has a snowball effect that affects other genes, and they leave behind a pattern that we can follow. There are other genes such as Kras, which is a gene that's also commonly mutated in many kinds of cancers, and there are many other types of genes this way, but we have found uh, many of the major genes, we call them the driver genes, just as it implies they're in the drivers, that when one of these genes it is more likely than not to be the cancer.
1: So why did you go to Zambia specifically? What was really going on there?
2: We had to go when you were asked to help other doctors who are also in the same fight. These very brave and intelligent doctors in Zambia have all had good training but they don't quite have the weapons that we do in the United States. So for instance, we in the United States have proton therapy, but they don't have anything like that. They, they use a technology called cobalt therapy, which had been used in the United States for quite a while, but now has not been used as much for the technical reasons why you would want to use cobalt. It's a little easier to maintain than using x-rays, but there's usually more side effects with cobalt, which is why we moved away from using
1: cobalt therapy. And so they needed your help.
2: they want to get our advice on what we would do, how we would minimize some toxicity in cobalt, and how we would approach things, and we gave them some advice. And so uh, you know, that certainly led us to be very thankful for what we have in the United States and just how far we are in terms of fighting cancer.
1: What would you say is the biggest mystery or the biggest case that you're trying to crack right now?
2: One of the areas that I'm worried about is going in the other direction, is how do we treat the most difficult cancers. One example that comes to mind is pancreatic cancer, where uh, the only time you can ever cure this cancer is if you have it removed surgically. But the problem with that is, in most cases with pancreatic cancer, the tumor can't be removed surgically because it's detected relatively late it's wrapped around a blood vessel that makes it impossible to cut out and we estimate that about 90% of patients who get diagnosed with this disease can't ever have an operation. So in the United States about 54,000 people or so get diagnosed a year. It means about 45,000 patients a year are told that they can't have an operation. The one thing we do know is that without an operation the chances of a cure are
1: what can you do with odds like that? And you know that I'm the person with the glasses always half full, but it kind of seems like they're stacked up against you.
2: I've devoted my life to try to figure out how to do something for these patients that have basically been told that they have a death sentence. And so that's something that we've been doing here at Anthony Anderson where we've been trying to use radiation to replace surgery. So in patients who've had chemotherapy and have had a a great response to chemotherapy but still can't get surgery, we're using high doses of radiation to try to approximate surgery. We don't know if it will be as good as surgery, but we think it will come pretty close. In one week, we've gone from, uh, I was in rural Africa, where we're treating some diseases that we would be able to cure with modern therapy. And then coming back to the United States, where we're treating some of the most difficult cancers. Uh, And I I think that we're making slow but steady
1: progress. So we actually have two mysteries here. One is the colorectal cancer in the 20-year-old men. And the other is, why are the cancers in Africa relatively easy to treat while the ones here in the United States are not? Is it our diet? Is it something that has to do with our microbiomes? Boy,
2: that's a really interesting question. So actually some of the most common cancers we see are things like cervical cancer, which you know, we have pap smears here, so we diagnosed those earlier, and then there's the colorectal cancer issue, and the Zambians thought it might be something in their diet. They felt that there had been some sort of pesticide exposure from some new farm somewhere near the city, and they felt that it was somehow linked to the formation of these cancers. Again, this is all speculative. I wouldn't want to say this on the record. I I just don't know. But what we know is that the microbiome, So that's something that I also study. And it's looking to be a very important part about how cancer starts and responds to treatment. And we also know that we only know a fraction of what it does.
1: And let's face it, our dirt, well, it's different than their dirt.
2: The microbiome changes depending on where you live. So your microbiome in Africa is different from Houston, from Phoenix, from New York. And the microbiome of every city changes how you respond to treatment and how you get cancer. So there's a, it's a very, very interesting question that we will be spending the next 20 to 30 years uh, unpacking.
1: Okay, I've always suspected it had something to do with our gut biology.
2: We should do a whole podcast on the microbiome. That's something that I study. I, I have some colleagues who... Really great too. I think we could have a really interesting discussion.
1: You know, that's a really good idea because I know some people who grew up on farms and they can eat anything. And people today have all these food allergies. It's so weird, don't you think? I mean, maybe it really is in the microbiomes.
2: You know, it makes a whole lot of sense. They've done that experiment in animals. Actually, they had one set of mice that ate sterile laboratory food, and they had one set of mice just eat garbage. Essentially, and uh, the the mice that ate wild food, you know, what mice would eat in the wild, had much stronger immune systems. They would ward off infections. They're much healthier for eating mouse garbage food. But uh, the mice that ate the sterile laboratory food got sick really easy. In fact, their immune systems were very, very weak. So we took this as a precautionary tale because. When we study mice in the laboratory, they get sterile food because we don't want them to get
1: sick, but they're not a good model of the immune system. So the plot is thickening, but I really think that you're onto something.
2: Yeah, everything you're saying is absolutely true. I think probably a lot of the diseases and problems that we've struggled to figure out, why is America gaining weight? Why are we having all these different health issues? When we've got so many things under control and I, I think there's something in our diet through the microbiome that I think this, when we figure it out, it will be one of the greatest medical mysteries ever solved. It's like the first time we discovered bacteria, you know, like your cholera and all this stuff. It would be like discovering it all over again, but it was the bacteria in our bodies. I think it'll be that big and I think it'll be within our lifetimes too. Uh, that's how fast the field is moving.
1: Even our whole premise about laboratory mice is wrong. This is absolutely fascinating.
2: Tying it back to DNA, the only reason we can understand this now is that we have the technology to sequence DNA. Most of the bacteria in our guts don't grow in a petri dish. Once you take them out of the body, they die. But now we can take a piece of poop and isolate the DNA and put it into a machine, and the machine will tell us all the bacteria that was present which even 10 years ago, this was not possible. So now that we have this technology, everyone is literally racing. I mean, just before you called me, I was working on this grant to try to get more funding for this microbiome project that I'm working on. Everyone with a laboratory and a heartbeat, I think, is working on this.
1: So it's a race, and I hope you get your grant so you can solve the mystery of pancreatic cancer once and for all. It's just a brutal disease. It really is. I've seen how devastating it is to my mother. But Colin, I have to thank you for all the help that you've given my family, the times that you've spoken to me on the phone with my mother. And also, thanks for being so compassionate when there was that time that I called you and I was crying. And thank you for taking time to speak with me today on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, microbiomes. Yes, that's your new word of the century, folks. You know how to spell it? OK, here, let me help you. M-I-C-R-O-B-I-O-M-E-S. Yes, you get to go to the spelling bee now. And Dr. Taniguchi's right. I think the big discovery last century was bacteria. And this year it's going to be microbiomes. So what the heck are they anyway? Let's stick with a short definition. Are you ready? They are the bacteria in our gut. The long definition comes from Dr. Michael Greger from NutritionFacts.org. He's a gut bug detective, essentially, and he comes at cancer with another strategy. I'm talking about diet.
0: We live with trillions of symbionts, good bacteria that live in symbiosis with us. We help them, they help us. And a month on a plant-based diet results in an increase of the good guys, and a decrease in the bad, the so-called pathobions, the disease-causing bugs. On an animal-based diet, you get growth of disease-associated species, and a decrease in fiber-eating bacteria. Eat fiber, and the fiber-munching bacteria multiply, and we get more anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, short-chain fatty acids. Eat less fiber, and our fiber-eating bacteria starve away. We assumed this was just because we were naturally selecting for those populations of bacteria that could do that, but it turns out our diet can teach old bugs new tricks. And what we learned is that we can each be thought of as a superorganism, a kind of human-microbe hybrid. We have trillions of bacteria living inside us. One commentator went as far as to say we are all bacterias, and most of those bacteria live in our gut. Only in recent years has our understanding of human physiology grown to a point where we can begin to understand how individual dietary components affect specific illnesses through our gut bacteria. The good news is that specific dietary interventions offer exciting potential for non-toxic, physiologic ways to alter gut microbiology and metabolism to benefit the natural course of many intestinal and systemic disorders.
1: Of course, he wasn't the first to think of this. Radical thinkers like the good folks at the Gerson Institute are changing the way that people deal with cancer. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we're about to solve a small piece of the mystery. In fact, I found this book called Dirt is Good. Really, that's what it's called. It's written by Jack Gilbert. He's the director of the University of Chicago Microbiome Center and Rob Knight. He's the director of the University of California Center for Microbiome Innovation. According to the book, It's good to help children grow what's called a protective microbiome because according to new research, a dirty kid, as it turns out, is a healthy kid. I mean, did you know that kids with dogs have a 13% reduced risk of asthma? Children on farms actually have a 50% reduced risk. And what they're finding is that if we're exposed to natural, healthy bacteria in the environment, our immune system doesn't go haywire and attack us. So they actually recommend let the kids go outside, interact with animals, play in the dirt, rivers and streams and oceans. In other words, maybe we shouldn't sterilize every single thing that they touch. Cancer research is progressing like never before. And I'm so grateful for the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, the MD Anderson Cancer Center, and for passionate experts like Cullen, Mike, and Ludmill. And I thank all the doctors and nurses and practitioners and researchers and scientists who are sacrificing their lives searching for cancer clues all around the world, the United States and Africa and other parts. Getting a diagnosis of cancer doesn't mean that you're going to die, but it does mean that you need to take medical care and knowledge into your own hands. Read everything that you can. Watch the TED Talks and do your research. I do believe that we will cure cancer one day, and I hope, I really hope, it's in my lifetime. I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, download it out, tweet it, you get the drill. I see and appreciate all your comments and all your shares.